There is no distinction between art and life. Art is the way we express life, and life is the way we express art. And that's a thing we get wrong in this country. We think of art as separate from life, as expendable, as vestigial, something we can live without. And again, we get rid of art programs in our schools because we think we only need reading and math to survive. Wrong. The fundamental characteristics of human survival are learning how to cooperate with others, how to build together, how to grow emotionally and socially and intellectually. Reading and science and math serve art. The way we express life is what changes the world. So art changes the world. Last season on Key Change, we introduced you to Opera for All Voices. Seven opera companies working together, resulting in four commissions, two workshops right around the corner. But what all is this? Is it just about music and words? No, we have to dig a little deeper. Opera for All Voices, what were we thinking? We were thinking grand. How many stories are there? Too many to count. Can you change the world through opera? Can we truly represent all voices in opera? All voices? That's a lot. How many more seats do we need to add to the table? We're going to need a bigger table. I'm Brandon Neal with the Santa Fe Opera. And I'm Andrea Fellows-Walters with the Santa Fe Opera. And this is Key Change, a podcast taking you inside opera for all voices. An initiative that began with commissioning and presenting new work, but has grown into something different. This season, we take a deeper dive and discuss the topics and questions that are shaping the future of opera in America. Fannie Lou Hamer rose from the humble beginnings in the Mississippi Delta to become one of the most important, passionate, and powerful voices of the civil and voting rights movement. She became a leader in the efforts for greater economic opportunities for African Americans, and many of us owe her a great debt for her sacrifices. This little light of mine, Brandon Neal talking with Chandler Carter, composer, and Diana Solomon Glover, librettist. Andrea, are you obsessed? Are we talking about Chandler and Diana? We are talking about Chandler and Diana. Yeah, I think I think I am a bit taken with them. <laughs> yeah. What lovely people. Amazing humans. Thoughtful, considerate, passionate. I remember our little lunch we had in yeah. New York City with them. At PJ Clark. At PJ Clark. Not a commercial. No. <laughs> but this will get some people who know that. Right location. outside the Lincoln Center, Metro- painting the picture. Yeah, plaza across the street. Very beautiful. The cathedral, as we like to call it, the Metropolitan Opera. A very cold afternoon. It was not as cold as some good <laughs> That's true. Yeah, it's anyway. not polar vortex yeah, cold. Yeah, But I was struck. We digress. We digress, yes. <laughs> I was struck by how well-spoken both of them are about presenting who they are. As someone who's still in that discovery phase, it's just really inspiring to see people who are so rooted in who they are as people and who they want to be, what kind of stories they want to tell, why they tell those stories. Do you remember what happened during that that conversation? Like, Remind me. We're sitting there and the people in the restaurant, like the wait staff, keeps moving closer and closer and closer. Like they're listening in on the conversation. And then one 100%. of the servers is like, amen. I mean, he's like right in our... That That is so true. Yes. I mean, they just like got together and just started preaching yeah. at this lunch table and riled us up and got us connected and got us feeling like we had a moment we to... We could change the world. Yes. But everybody within like earshot... Of them <laughs> yeah. felt just as powerful. Yeah. That's not something that 
you I, that's not can ever learn. happened to me before. No, not at all. You can't learn we, how to do that. And we have passionate conversations. We do. Yeah, you can't fake that or learn how to do that. No. You just are that. We lucked out. Yeah. We really lucked out. And not just a great creative team, but giving them a platform to share who they are and, and how they want to tell story is um, an honor. Yes. My name is Diana Solomon Glover. I'm the librettist in this project. My earliest opera memory is of harassing my mother at the piano, my sister and I, when she was learning her arias and roles. She was an aspiring opera singer. So she used us to help her learn her <laughs> arias and roles. I'm Chandler Carter. I'm a composer from North Carolina. That's interesting. I didn't know your mother was an opera singer. Yeah. My uh, parents were not. <laughs> I'm from eastern North Carolina, rural eastern North Carolina, and I never saw an opera until I was in college. My first formative experience when I really loved opera mm -hmm. was I had a good music history professor who knew most of us had never seen an opera, and he knew that to really appreciate it, you had to experience the whole thing. Now, we didn't have DVDs or uh, videos back then, but he rescheduled class in the evening to have a three or four-hour slot to just listen to the entire opera. We listened to two operas that semester, Marriage Figaro and Verdi's Otello. But I just remember taking the break after the second act of Figaro, just floating out of the room and just have loved it ever since. What drives you, inspires you to create opera? I was swaddled in music, and I can't remember a time when I wasn't singing or humming or fascinated by the power of music and the human voice. And as I said, my mother was an aspiring opera singer in the 60s. Some of your older listeners may remember the original Amateur Hour that was hosted by Ted Mack. I'm giving away my age now. <laughs> and I guess you could think of that as the grandfather of American Idol. It started the talent competition craze. And people like Frank Sinatra and Pat Boone, Gladys Knight even, mm. Beverly Sills, as I think she was 12 years old, Maria Callas, wow. got their start on the original Amateur Hour. So my mother was a contestant, I think it was 1966, and she was a three-time winner. And the last time she won second place with the aria Un Baldi from Puccini's Madame Butterfly. And she was also Jenny in a production of Court Viles Down in the Valley. Mm -hmm. and, uh, my sister and I sang Brack Weaver and Thomas <laughs> Boucher. We were very young, but we were really into the drama, the star-crossed lovers, forbidden love and all of that. Yeah. And the fact that my mother, a black woman, had been chosen to play the heroine opposite a white man was not lost on us. Mm -hmm. She was pushing boundaries. Here was opera pushing boundaries. And I was hooked. Was that a transcendent moment for you? It was just to see that it was possible, and especially in racially stratified St. Louis, mm -hmm. it was not a usual thing. There's something about seeing yourself in people that look like you doing incredible things that's really a really big um, moment. There's everything about it. My first husband is an opera singer, and we would talk a lot about cream rising to the top, mm -hmm. and maybe there's only so much room at the top. And we always thought that we would know that the industry had changed when there were black workaday singers. And that is starting to become 
the case. I am just really thrilled and encouraged by the number of young black singers that are out here earning a living. Mm-hmm. Chandler, how about you? Believe it or not, I started out as a singer as well. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yes. And as a composer, I was naturally gravitated to writing for The Voice. So I first started with songs, but I also was driven to writing dramatic songs. Of course, opera is attractive because it's not just music, but it's also theater and drama and people's stories. And it really puts it all together, draws all these things that are of interest to me. So I found it irresistible. So you guys are the fourth commission team for the Opera Fall Voices Initiative. Can you tell our listeners in a nutshell, what is the story of this little light of mine? You know, somebody asked me this at a dinner party of Christmas, so I was ready for it. So um, <laughs> it's basically how Fannie Lou Hamer discovered her voice. So the central episodes of the story are kind of obvious. They're the ones that Fannie Lou Hamer told again and again, not just at that, her famous testimony at the Democratic National Convention in 1964. That's when America discovered her. But she always told those two stories of her kind of humiliating failure to register to vote, attempt to register to vote in Indianola in 62, and then her arrest in Winona, Mississippi, and beating, torture essentially, in jail in 1963. So those are the center of the story. But unfortunately, sadly, thousands and thousands of African Americans have experienced that violence and humiliation. What distinguishes Fannie Lou Hamer is that she found her voice to tell that story. And also who she is, is utterly unique, having little formal education. She speaks with an authenticity that is almost shocking. And I think it shocked people at that, that moment. Yeah, most black people have heard of Fannie Lou Hamer and many know her story mm-hmm. and a few white people do. But when people don't know or say they don't know, as soon as you say the phrase, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, They know exactly who you're talking about, what you're speaking about. And this little light of mine, in my estimation, is the story of who she is and what she gave to this nation, how she intercepted the struggle, especially in Mississippi. She drop-kicked it over the goalpost. And it's also about what it cost her. Is that why this story is so important and why Fannie Lou Hamer was so attractive as a subject of a chamber opera. Yeah, I was drawn to the drama of Fannie Lou Hamer the first time I ever heard a recording of her speech. Just, I'll never forget it. It was in the back of my mind as I wanted to come back and incorporate that and somehow into an opera. So it was in my mind for all these years, and so it was ready to come out whenever I found the opportunity. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee, My name is Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, and I live at 626 East Lafayette Street, Roosevelt, Mississippi, Sunflower County, the home of Senator James O. Eastland and Senator Stennis. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles 
to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola with, by policemen, highway patrolmen, and they only allowed two of us in to take the literacy test at the time. After we had taken this test and started back to Roosevelt, we were held up by the city police and the state highway patrolmen and carried back to Indianola, where the bus driver was charged that day with driving a bus the wrong color. After we paid the fine among us, we continued on. Fannie Lou Hamer is the story of America today. We continue struggling to live up to our lofty image of ourselves as humanitarian, as generous, as godly, as exceptional. We talk about how this is a timely moment, this cultural moment. Frankly, every American moment is timely to hear that question, to kind of interrogate ourselves. And so her voice speaks to us, I think, all the time. Are there any pressures in telling the story of a historical figure? Well, I think we're bound to a considerable extent to the facts of her life, but mm. not rigidly. I mean, it's an opera after all. It's not journalism or history. So we're tweaking, even this day, we're tweaking little things, making this character into that somebody else so they can be younger or whatever. But I do think it's important and we're obligated to do is to find and convey the truth of Fannie Lou Hamer's story. We have to distill it and keep it in our mind, and that's the compass. Yeah, so Brendan, more than capturing the facts and presenting them in a timeline to, to which we are attentive, as Chan said, the thing that Chan and I have set out to do is tell the meaning of her story, to put it into historical perspective, to show why she was important, and how what she did shaped the narrative and altered the collective American conscience. Her address to the Credentials Committee at the Democratic Convention in Atlantic City in 1964 reached Americans in their living rooms, in their private spaces, and gave them a firsthand account of real life in Mississippi, both what blacks were enduring and the system that whites felt duty-bound to protect. So sometimes when you're rooting out the historical facts for retelling, you can err by stripping away too much of the soil. You need to preserve the climate and conditions of the times in which they occurred. And God forbid your audience walks away having heard the facts without an investment in the significance and no understanding of how what happened in 1964 led us to where we are in 2019, to the present. That opens up a great question I have for you. What do you want audiences to take away from this particular piece? I hope audiences see American history. I hope it flicks a switch and brings people to conceptualize the history of colored people in this country as American history. I hope it dawns on people that Americans are who we are because of Americans like Fannie Lou Hamer. I want audiences to try to open their eyes and ears to people that are not just different looking than them, but also people who have different lives. Fannie Lou Hamer was not just an African-American woman. She was also poor. And for a lot of Americans, that's an even wider gap. And her mm. poverty has everything to do with who she was and how she experienced. And if we can 
attach ourselves in, to her story, hear her voice, and kind of vicariously feel what she was feeling, I think we make a, a connection, or at least have the possibility of a connection. So that's what I want. Do you think opera as an art form has the power to change hearts and minds? It definitely has the power to change hearts and minds. It helps create us. It makes us who we are as feeling beings in this world. And so we have the capacity to make change. The, the, the music or the art doesn't literally make the change, but it makes us indirectly, yeah. yeah. I think that as long as opera is evolving and telling stories in ways that are relevant, the art form changes people. And I think we make the mistake of seeing art and life as separate. There's no distinction. Art is how we express life, mm -hmm. and life is how we express art. Is that how we continue to engage modern audiences? I think so. I think opera must continue to evolve. It has to keep going in places where it has not been and living in worlds where it has not dared to tread. Chandler, do you have any thoughts on that? Modern audiences and not just the creation of new opera, but, you know, the masterworks. Where, mm -hmm. Is there a place for that in today's society and future societies? Yeah, I do think so, but I'm ambivalent about it. I mean, I'm passionate about it. I mean, I was drawn, you know, as I said earlier, to Mozart operas. I'm never going to not think Mozart is the greatest composer of operas. And I teach it, and I keep raising that up as the standard of greatness. But that's not the be-all and end-all. And I wish we had a different name for what we do. I've subtitled tentatively this piece, the story of Fannie Lou Hamer, and I don't even call it an opera. The reason I do that, it's not that I have anything against it, it's just that it raises in people's minds an expectation that my work is not going to fulfill. It's going to be something very different. If they think they're going to see La Boheme, which is great, they're not going to. I'm not going to give them La Boheme. Maybe we can coin a new term. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, modern dance is a good term to distinguish itself from ballet. Opera doesn't have something like that to distinguish itself. We have, know. like, the words contemporary or right. modern. I mean, Wagner tried to do this when he called his works music dramas. But we don't call his work music dramas. We still call them operas. But people have been doing this off and on for well over 100 years. So I don't know that it will change. But I do think it is helpful to understand that the music theater or the sung drama or what we're creating, I'm convinced composers and dramatists are always going to want to put live singing, live music, and drama on a stage. So you want to call that opera? Well, whatever you want to call that, it's powerful because you're bringing all these forces together. But the conventions of opera, you just can't turn your back on them because they're involved in everything, how singers are trained, how we're educated. The fact that we're playing for our college students Mozart operas and teaching them how great he is and how Verdi is. So our minds are shaped by the tradition, but that can also be a albatross around our neck too. So you can't throw it away, but it would be good to unburden ourselves of it. The struggle is my life. I will fight for freedom. You touched on it a little bit. Can you describe your approach to creating music, especially in regards to this particular piece? So this opera, it's built on the voice of Fannie Lou Hamer. 
first literally the voice of Fannie Lou Hamer. I was inspired by Steve Reich to do is to actually take the recorded voice. And that's what put Fannie Lou Hamer in our public minds is her voice. And it has music in itself, notated not just the rhythm, but also the inflections and the key of people's speaking voice. You can do that with anyone's speech. And when you do it, you really get inside their voice. Not only it's tempo, it's mode, it's literally, it's key. So you'll hear a recording of Fannie Lou Hamer's, it punctuates the drama. And then another thing is, of course, Fannie Lou Hamer's singing voice. Fannie Lou Hamer was a fine singer, very expressive, and it has a power in itself. So her protest songs, church songs, she was deeply religious that infused every single thing she did. So her voice, of course, comes through there that you're going to hear this lot of mine is just the, the title song. There's others. Ain't going to let nobody turn me around. Woke up this morning with my mind set on freedom. And then the other thing that's important to me is kind of the vernacular music of not just that time, the 60s, but also the present time. I've been listening to gospel music. I listened to Aretha Franklin. I mean, the music of the 60s, but also the music of the day. Rap artists respond to Fannie Lou Hamer. Childish Gambino's hit last year, This Is America. Does anybody doubt that's an, and a response to Fannie Lou Hamer's question, Is This America? He's referencing Fannie Lou Hamer. Kendrick Lamar, in one of his songs on his Untitled album, the first words out of his mouth, I'm sick and tired of being tired. Young musicians... African-American musicians are in conversation with Fannie Lou Hamer. They know who she is. And so that, to me, just like, yes, it's not just her time, it's our time as well. And that's exciting to me, that I have always go to somebody else's music as a model. I'm a Stravinsky scholar, and Stravinsky always did that. I always pick something to listen to, then digest it, and that's going to form what I compose. So this is the first time I've ever written a piece in which I've kind of infused myself with contempor literally contemporary music. Luckily, I have an 18-year-old at home who's able to, um, as a free <laughs> consultant. That's always helpful, correct? It is helpful. That's why we had him. That's why we had him. Diana, can you talk about your process as a librettist? Um, you and Chandler have such a great working relationship, especially seeing you two interact with each other. I feel like your brains are always on fire when you both are within 10 feet of each other. It's funny. It starts with fear. I wake up every day I'm thinking about what I'm writing, scared to write it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> scared to sit down at the computer and write. But I force myself to do it. And probably because I know when I start, I'm going to be so invested and so open that that in itself is scary. Is it vulnerable? Absolutely. Mm. It is a vulnerable space. And I think that my ideas in my head are just fantastic, but I don't know how they're going to be perceived how by other people. To exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But I find that when Chan and I talk, it totally reassures me that I'm on the right track. And one of the things I, I try to do is I try to immerse myself in the subject matter. I try to learn as much as I'm capable of stuffing into my head. I don't think in the same way that Chan does. He's got a genius mind that can hold all of these things. My mind holds emotions and poetry more than facts. 
But I try to immerse myself in the subject, and then I just do a stream of consciousness thing. I just write what comes to me, and I try not to edit until I've written so much that I'm tired and I have to take a break, and then I come back. What attracted both of you to this initiative? Also, how did you hear about it? That's something I'm always interested in. I don't even know how I heard about it. I got an email, most of which I just throw away, and I don't know why I opened this one. And then I read it, and then Opera for All Voices doesn't ask for specific things, but asks for many things that it could do. Strong voices, women's voices, social justice. Of course, social justice, strong women's voices. The name Fannie Lou Hamer just, as I said, it was in the back of my head, been in the back of my head for over 20 years. So it came to the forefront of my head. And I think before I finished reading it, I emailed Diana and said, would you like to write a libretto for The Life of Fannie Lou Hamer? And I think she must have had her phone sitting right there because she responded within a minute. Yes. And I think she added an expletive in there too. So I was off and running then. So between the time I found out the notice and the time that the project was underway with my collaborator was less than five minutes. So (laughs) 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 it took, now it is taking, of course, it takes a while to take shape. It's still taking shape right now, but... The process of creating opera is a long process. Mm -hmm. But it was conceived quickly because it was ready to go. Did it come as quickly to you, Diana? I can't remember what exactly was happening. I have been sort of in a life transition for the last three or four years and recognizing that my endeavors as a singer are transitioning to other interests. And... I'm pretty sure that I was wandering, probably lying in the bed, staring at the ceiling, thinking, okay, what I'm going to do now? (laughs) (laughs) We all have those moments, right? Yes, yeah. And so then I get this email from Chan, and I'm like, yes, I didn't even know I wanted to do that. Of course. This is just a personal question for me because I'm always interested in, is how would you describe the selection process? Was it something that was... You were like on the edge of your seat, like waiting to hear back, or was it something that you kind of just submitted and let go? And well, that you know, I'm an old man now, and so uh, these things <laughs> you just throw them out. I was very impressed from the beginning by the panel of judges, diverse in every way, diverse from all different realms of the opera world: singers, stage directors, conductors, and that seemed to me really serious. You wanted serious projects, and you had a serious group of people that could really discern. And then just the ongoing process of the follow-up questions I thought were really interesting and showed real thought and that you were taking my work seriously. And it inspired me to really hone my ideas. Yeah. When we submitted our treatment, frankly, I just kind of forgot about it. (laughs) I went on, you know, so many other things. I went on with my life and then... Chan said, they're interested. I said, they're interested? 
they're interested. And so it was a complete shock to me that we were, like he said, shortlisted. But it was incredibly helpful to have the feedback and the questions. And like Chan said, it did help us hone into what we wanted to do mm-hmm. with this project. And from that point on, my process is that I think very visually. Images come to me. And so when we had that feedback from you guys, I started to imagine what the piece would look like and how it would feel, how it would land, how I wanted it to land on the audience. And I have to say the process of working with you guys has been surprisingly easy. And that's because it's been very well thought out. Your expectations are clear, but you have a gentle hand, and it gives us the feeling, or it gives me the feeling, that you trust us as partners in the process, which eliminates a lot of the angst that usually is associated with birthing an art, a piece of art. Agreed. talked about this over lunch the other day. Everyone is so excited for this piece. I'm so excited for our listeners and the audiences that will come and experience it to hear what I hope will be not only worthwhile, but transformative experience, especially in these, what some feel, a lot feel, are troubling times (laughs) that we're living through. And to go from the present to really looking into the future, how do we continue to provide these avenues, these opportunities, these stories, how do we keep that going into the future? Well, I would like to say this, and we talked a little bit about education, and I think that's the key. For decades now, we have been pilfering the arts from our schools. Opera seems irrelevant to most young people because they are not exposed to it. In fact, classical music, formal music, and I don't mean to suggest that classical music is elevated above any other form of music, genre of music, because it isn't. But formal music. Band, orchestra, chorus. Yes, we've been taking, stripping our schools and in the neediest communities. And it takes more than just a roving band of singers from an opera company to show up at school once a year. It takes investment and systematic programming. And... The establishment has not cared very much about that because the establishment, in my opinion, has felt invulnerable. Their institutions are endowed into perpetuity, it seems. But now the reality is that patrons of the arts are, and particularly opera, are dying. They're literally dying. And administrators are sort of in a panic. And I think what if the opera world started or aligned itself with a movement to get music and art back into every single school in this country. The opera world has to become its own champion in order to save itself, in order to ensure its survival. Yeah, I agree. So what's important to me, that it's live singing on a stage, enacting a drama, telling a story. 
it's present in a way that there's something about a live performance that anybody who experiences, especially people that perform in them, it's just life-changing. They long to do it if they've had that experience, if they've had that experience. But in this world where most of us, I don't have an iPhone, I'm proud to say, but almost everybody else <laughs> in the world does, you have the music in your ear on the subway, and all. it's so easy, it's facile. That's fine, but if that is all that we're left with, then we're, I think, diminished as beings. And that's what I think Diane is getting at, whether classical or whatever it is. It's live music making and something where you're actually, you yourself are involved, not just as an audience member. What opera has always been about since its beginnings is telling universal stories, archetypes, archetypal characters. And I think that whatever the future of this genre is, that's what I think is our compass, that you have to tell universal stories that reach everyone. Any opera that I have ever cared about has addressed social issues. Madame Butterfly, The Marriage of Figaro, Don Giovanni, La Boheme. Those operas make stinging commentary on the social reality of their day. And opera, whether it's grand opera or folk opera, is sweeping by its very nature, and it's uniquely suited to represent the epic and the bold and the archetypal. As Chan said, it is a living, breathing phenomenon. And like every living creature, it adapts and evolves to survive and remain relevant. And it's uniquely suited and poised to dramatize, especially the issues of the day, the issues that we face now. There's one little problem, I think, with picking historical figures. The benefit of a historical figure is that they're relatable. People can identify, especially if they're African-American, that's Fannie Lou Hamer. I want to see an opera about Fannie Lou. I want to hear her story. She won't speak to everybody the same way. And as I'm writing this opera, I want her to speak to everyone in some way or the other. And that, I think, is our challenge, to build bridges and not drive wedges. That's what I think this historical moment needs more than anything. Next time on Key Change, Time's Up Opera, where are women? On stage? Backstage? In the stories? At the table. Key Change is a production of the Santa Fe Opera in collaboration with Opera for All Voices. We are produced and edited by Andrea Clunder at the Creative Imposter Studios. Our hosts are me, Brandon Neal, and Andrea Fellows-Walters. Our audio engineer is Cabby at Cabby Sound Studios in Santa Fe. Music by Renee Orth with cover art by David Towsley. This podcast is made possible due to the generous funding from the Melville Hankins Family Foundation, the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation, and the Opera America Innovation Grant supported by the Ann and Gordon Getty Foundation. To learn more about Opera for All Voices, visit us at santafeopera.org. Boom. Mic drop. Oh, yes. Absolutely. <laughs>